You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 9th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... It is so comical. I mean, it's so ticklish, I would say. To look at British democracy, the birth of democracy, and then you see how Parliament is being treated. Boris Johnson prorogues the British Parliament. My guests Aisha Sadika and Daniela Pellet will discuss this and the day's other news, including how China and Pakistan's relationship will affect any eventual outcome for India and Pakistan's feud over Kashmir. And why does Benjamin Netanyahu have Boris Yeltsin on the brain? Plus... The fact is, rats are here because of us. As long as human trash is on the street, New York will maintain its status as one of the rodent capitals of the world. A rodent's eye view of New York. I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Aisha Siddiqui, the military scientist, author and research associate at SOAS in London, and Daniela Pallet, managing editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting. Welcome to you both. We begin in Pakistan, where a recent meeting between China's foreign minister and the Pakistani army chief general in Islamabad has seen the two nations aiming to strengthen ties. The relationship between Pakistan and military superpower China is not one that sits well with neighbour India. India and Pakistan have recently reignited their decades-long feud over the disputed border region of Kashmir, sitting between the two countries. Aisha, tell us about the dynamic of the Pakistan-China relationship. Well, in Pakistan, it's popularly said it's a relationship which is deeper than the Arabian Sea, higher than Himalayas and sweeter than honey. Uh, That's how it goes. Uh, But there is, you know, there's a very strong military relationship between the two countries. In the middle of that, what China started somewhere in 2008 was the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor relationship, which is a purely economic relationship, which meant $60 billion worth of financing in Pakistan, in infrastructure, uh, business development, etc., etc. Now, that relationship kind of slowed down because the Pakistani military thought that it needed to improve relations with the U.S., Uh, And so there has been that cold phase. So this visit from the foreign minister is kind of perhaps uh, taking it back to where it started. It's renegotiating. And and, and, and let's not forget that it comes in the wake of the recent uh, development in South Asia, which is India um, turning Kashmir into a union territory and changing the status. So it it sits in the middle of an impending conflict in in South Asia. Mm. Just to pick up on what you said about the China-Pakistan economic corridor, that's really quite controversial, though, within Pakistan, isn't it? I mean, there are all sorts of fears about it being a massive debt trap. Well, you know, the two times that the Pakistani general, um, the army chief, has come to Britain, he's been made aware of that. I mean, not just by Britain, but America as well, that here is a debt trap. And, you know, there is controversy. The way uh, it was programmed, the way it was done, also the fact that um, 
the the, the least underdeveloped areas in Pakistan, uh, which is Khyber Pakhtunkhwa uh, and Balochistan, which are bordering on on Afghanistan, uh, instead of that route. Uh, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor kind of focuses on the more developed parts in Punjab. So there, there, there are a lot of stories about it, but it is in China's interest. And what has had started to happen, because when the army chief and, and, and the uh, prime minister of the country, Imran Khan, they, they visited um United States, Trump was at his best. President Trump had flattered the army chief, called him the most powerful general in the world and all of that, and basically to kind of push China away. Now, that would have worked and the Pakistani army would have loved it uh, had this Kashmir thing not happened, Mm. which brings them back. And now my fear is that if uh, the Chinese come back with a heavy hand and say, let's get back to our part of the deal in CPEC, uh, then, you know, Pakistan, despite the controversy, will have to basically take it lying down, whatever uh, China dictates. Mm. I mean, as you say, Kashmir is at the, at the heart of this. Daniela, they're talking about, uh, or Pakistan would, would like the United Nations to have a look at this, but, but in, in a closed session, they're pushing Beijing to, to actually try and make that happen. Is that the usual way that you would go about a, 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 a soothing a diplomatic spat like that? No, it's very it's very unusual. Um, and when we come to uh, these kinds of, of disputes, uh, countries generally want them to be resolved bilaterally. Uh, the idea that there's going to be other uh, other actors involved in dictating terms um, is usually anathema, especially if you're in a position of power. But there is a long way between uh, active conflict, which we've been on the verge of numerous times, um, and all these other little diplomatic and diplomatic skirmishes and little power struggles, which can be uh, expressed in a number of ways: trade wars, uh, limiting movement, freedom of travel. Um, you know there are there is a, a wide range of responses that they, that can be um, drawn upon. Mm. Why do you do you think Aisha that Pakistan is so important to China? Oh, because um, in a China-India confrontation, Pakistan is the only country in South Asia which has the military muscle to stand up to uh, India. Also, there is this long. Uh, going conflict between um, India and Pakistan. Um, you know, to pick up on what was being said, I think what has happened in Kashmir is is dramatic. And China will probably build on that insecurity that, that there is. Um, China, I mean, China-Pakistan relations started somewhere in the 60s. 62 was when China-India had their only war, the first and last war. And then 65, Pakistan had a war with India, then again in 1971. I mean, India and Pakistan are two countries that have had at least three and a half conventional wars and numerous skirmishes. So for China, it means here is a country which is so incensed by its own problems with with India and will, has no other option but to be on China's side. That's what the plan seems to be. And Kashmir issue just doesn't help. I mean, bilaterally, if in left to India, India's thing would be, all right, let's um, have, accept 
the line of control between the two countries, India and Pakistan, as the international boundary, let the Kashmir issue die down, uh, doesn't help Pakistan, doesn't help uh, the Kashmiri people. Um, and it doesn't help the image of Pakistan's military, which is politically very powerful. Aisha Sadiqa and Daniela Pallet there. We'll be back in just a moment, but first, here's Monocle's Ben Rylan with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Georgina. Russia's ruling party has lost seats in the Moscow parliament. The results suggest that the voting strategy supported by opponents may have worked. Sunday's elections were closely monitored by international observers after the exclusion of opposition candidates provoked widespread protests. Iran is continuing its move towards enriching uranium, despite it being banned under the 2015 nuclear agreement. The Islamic Republic confirmed last week that it plans to breach the deal's limits on research and development. The UN nuclear watchdog chief, Cornel Feruta, told a recent news conference that time is of the essence if world powers want to save the deal. And as we'll be hearing later in the program, the UK's Prime Minister has opted to suspend Parliament from the end of today until the 14th of October. Boris Johnson has been hoping to prorogue Parliament in a move that critics say will intentionally cut the time available for MPs to block a no-deal exit from the European Union. That's what's making news today. Back to you, Georgina. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin here with Aisha Sadiqa and Daniela Pallad. We move on now to Israel, where Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made the headlines yesterday for a very public slip of the tongue. At the leader's weekly cabinet meeting, he accidentally referred to UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson as deceased Russian leader Boris Yeltsin. Official video of the remark was hastily edited to omit the faux pas. The episode comes as Israeli diplomacy has been essentially temporarily put on ice, with the foreign ministry pausing spending due to a major budget deficit in Israel. Daniela, why does Benjamin Netanyahu have Yeltsin on the brain? Well, it would be rather lovely to read something psychological into this. I mean, they were they were they did serve as leaders of their country at the same time back in the in the late nineties, and they had meetings. I mean, it would be nice to think of those those are the halcyon early days for Benjamin Netanyahu, just at the start of his leadership, and uh, now things looking tricky for him: corruption, uh, a very uh, unwieldy government. He's uh, his his whole uh, political. Uh, career is is uh, is looking pretty dicey at the moment, but I think it was just a slip of the tongue. What makes this a bit bizarre is that the way they tried to edit it out, rather than just sort of owning this mistake, because mistakes do happen. Um, but you know, it's uh, he he uh, he is, has been known for confusing uh, countries recently in terms he talked about Israel's relations with Azerbaijan but he said Afghanistan by mistake which uh, maybe there's a pattern here I mean he said that uh, every he said he was just checking to see that everyone was paying attention oh, the, the classic the classic <laughs> right I'm just I'm, yeah I'm just uh, that was that mistake was on purpose well, that, that was a smart way to get around and say I was just checking now I, I think what well, I, I agree with Daniela but I think that it's also, it says something about this generation, a different generation of leadership. I mean, Trump does it all the time. Uh, wrong names, wrong places. Um, it's just these leaders which are so obsessed with their internal politics or how they're shaping it that they don't care about the world. Mm. I mean, compare it with leaders of 
you know, two decades ago, uh, who had who were much more connected with the world map. And it would seem that, that what we're losing here is accuracy and respect. Yes, indeed. I mean, you know, you are... I have become... I mean, it's almost like saying I am the centre of the world and that's how I'm going to define it. I don't care uh, who you are. Uh, there's minor details, which may be a matter of honour and respect for you, but I don't care about it. Mm. I mean, that's exactly what uh, Netanyahu's visit to London was. It was a surprise, last-minute announcement. Uh, he wants to get uh, photo calls of him shaking hands with international leaders. It's as simple as that. That is Netanyahu's uh, unique selling point. I am the guy who can deal with the leaders of the world. I'm the guy who can say yes or no to the... Um, British Prime Minister to the uh, President of the United States. There was, uh, you know, the, the the reason and purpose for a meeting when Britain, as we're going to talk about later, is mired in such political turmoil just ahead of uh, Israeli elections. I mean, it's clear and very, very self-serving. Yeah. I mean, Israel's foreign office has, has uh, funded, has frozen funding recently. Do you think that diplomacy is really a field that any nation can afford to not be engaged in? Well, this is a long-running problem for Israel. The foreign ministry has been uh, had its funding cut numerous times. Diplomats have gone on strike numerous times. And it's strange because while Israel cares a great deal about its image abroad, um, diplomacy, in a formal sense, has not been uh, a priority, uh, it seems. Uh, there's this this concept um, within Israel that the world would understand the Israeli point of view and the occupation of the Palestinians and the region it finds itself fighting in, uh, if only it could be explained, if only people understood, if the world wasn't, if its case could be made. Um, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of effort was being put into what they call Hasbara, which roughly translated means explaining, or rather perhaps public propaganda. Um, But in the last five, six years, I think there's been a move within Israel thinking that... uh, especially since the beginning of the Syrian civil war, that attention is elsewhere. No one really uh, is that interested in the Palestinians anymore, for instance. And actually, it doesn't matter what people think of us, what other countries, because economically we're doing great. Uh, Our regional relations are fine. So I think there is less interest in trying to make Israel's case on a popular level. Well, if there was any country and indeed any man that needs good PR, it's Boris Johnson and Britain. Let's check in on the latest from the floundering government. After a disastrous week in Parliament last week, he suffered another high-profile cabinet resignation over the weekend, that, of course, Amber Rudd. And he's even been threatened with the prospect of jail time if he insists on pursuing a no-deal Brexit. Legislation to prevent that outcome will become law by today after being approved by the UK Parliament. Uh, And right after that... Of course, Parliament will be suspended from the end of business today. Extraordinary times. Now, Johnson was in Ireland today. He was meeting with the Irish leader, Leo Varadkar, where no deal still seemed to be a talking point. Like you, I've looked carefully at no deal. I've assessed its consequences both for our country and and yours. And yes, of course, we could do it. The UK could certainly get through it, but be in no doubt that outcome would be a failure of statecraft for which we would all be responsible. 
And that's him blaming everybody again, isn't it? Everybody's responsible for this. Uh, what do, more do we know about the Johnson-Varadkar meeting? I mean, is, is there a possibility of a happy outcome there? I think Boris Johnson will probably push for the, and he continues to go for the maximalist uh, option here. Um, I don't think that there is something, you know, it's, it's, it's a very fundamental question for Ireland as well. And if you're going for Britain goes for no deal Brexit uh, with no heart stop and, and all of those discussions uh, not on the table, uh, I don't see there is much coming out of uh, out of there. Mm. And, 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 you know, honestly, uh, it is so comical. I mean, it's so ticklish, I would say, to look at British democracy uh, I mean, the birth of democracy. And then you see how uh, Parliament is being treated. Uh, Boris Johnson is probably pushing for as far as he could go. I'm sure he wouldn't want to see himself land in, in jail or, or nobody's going to actually put him there. But he is pushing the Parliament and all Britain's institutions to uh, the limit. Mm, absolutely. I mean, do you think, Daniela, he is on track to break the law? I mean, Dominic Raab and, and uh, Sajid Javid did the rounds of the, the TV shows on Sunday and they were suggesting that they would test the anti-no-deal law to the absolute limit. I mean, they stopped just short of saying he would go to prison, but it seems extraordinary that people like the Attorney General, I mean, who, who said he wouldn't stand for it, but that he should even think about putting them in this kind of position. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary and we are these are extraordinary time for, for British politics. I think when it comes to breaking the law and going to prison, I think there are numerous ways that they can finesse that. I think that's a very unlikely result. But again, it's uh, a, a, the latest display of political brinksmanship. And what it serves to do is erode people's trust and respect for politics as an institution and our political class in general. I mean, the Conservative Party now is, and the Labour Party too, in a mirror image, seems to be taken over by extremists working from a very narrow political agenda. And what has always distinguished British politics, I think, has been a, a sort of reasonable sense of fair play, broad church, so to speak, politics, where it's there, there are two main political parties, but they can... Um, they can absorb quite a range of political uh, views. That's absolutely not the case now. And to see what's going on in the Conservative Party itself is quite alarming. People are being very outspoken about the disaster that they see being visited, not just uh, regarding Brexit, but on our political institutions in general. Mm -hmm. I think the use of language is really important as well. I mean, you mentioned uh, extremists, and we look at the 21 who've broken away from the Tory party. We're calling them rebels. But in fact, the rebels surely here now are, are those very extremists, the ones the ones in power. Indeed, that is the case. Um, you know, I think nobody's even seriously looking at how political language has changed. Uh, the language itself has become very extreme. Um, it's, it's, it's pushing for uh, demands. And, 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 and I think one of, the, one of the biggest problems is that there is no, uh, no strong opposition on the other, other side. I mean, we completely look at Tories, but I don't see uh, the Labour Party also providing any alternative. I mean, Corbyn is kind of silent uh, all the time. Mm -hmm. And today, of course, uh, Parliament suspended. Yes, I really don't know what, what, what to make of it. It just seems, well, well, there is no precedent really for this. So uh, once again, we seem to see a 
prime minister who's imposing his will on parliament and the people. Uh, you know, extraordinary today looking at the, watching the, the press conference. It, it doesn't, Boris Johnson does not do well in press conferences with he's with another leader. I mean, Leo Varadkar, it, he's got a pretty good delivery and a pretty good um, mien, but he just looks, he, he looks even more buffoonish uh, than usual. So it's very hard to expect people to have any kind of respect for who is basically an unelected leader who seems uninterested in uh, any kind of middle ground or courting of public opinion. Although I did think that his language today was a little bit more conciliatory when it came to the no deal, talking about it as a, as a failure. Um, he's gen- I think he's, he's dial- dialing down slightly his talk of, uh, of no deal versus a negotiated deal. Um, uh, but still, uh, how can anything happen when Parliament is suspended? Daniela Pellard and Aisha Sadika, thank you very much. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. Join Marco Sippi for the menu, bringing you Monocle 24's recipe for the best in drinking and dining. We make entertaining a doddle. It's incredibly easy to make. With expert opinions. You can use fish fillets, which you grill in the oven or pan fry. A bit of seasoning. Lots of lime, a lot of cracked pepper, and a bit of good olive oil. And plenty of spice. And then you cook it in caraway and seven spice, as well as something sweet. Then you take a big pot of mascarpone and spoon it into your egg yolk. And maybe even a little bit nuts. You take it out, you top it with some pine nuts and you're good to go. It's a recipe that's guaranteed to impress. It's slightly controversial, but it's the one thing that has surprised the most people when they eat it. Premiering live on Monocle 24 every Friday at 20.00 London time, midday in Los Angeles, or downloadable wherever you get your podcasts. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Finally, today, with a dispatch from New York, here's Monocle's Henry Rhys Sheridan. For over 300 years, a war has raged in New York City. The belligerents are rats and humans. And last Thursday, the humans unveiled a new weapon. It's a trap. It lures its victims in with nuts and seeds, then it drowns them in a heady cocktail of alcohol, oil and vinegar. In the glamorous twist, the traps are imported from Italy. In 1944, the writer Joseph Mitchell surveyed the city's rat population in an essay for The New Yorker. He identified three species, the black rat, the brown rat and the rarer Alexandrian rat from Egypt. In the years since, the brown rat, described by Mitchell as the dirtiest, the fiercest and the biggest of the lot, has come to dominate the city. Research by Fordham University shows that in Manhattan, the brown rats have subdivided into two evolutionary clusters. There are distinct uptown and downtown rats. New York's humans have used three main methods in their attempts to curtail the rat population. The first is traps and poisons. These range from simple spring traps to sophisticated chemical warfare techniques. In 2017, the Department of Health rolled out fertility management bait, essentially a form of birth control for rats. Another recent innovation is packing rat burrows with dry ice pellets. They release suffocating carbon dioxide, which turns the rats' homes into their foggy graves. The second category of human-on-rat violence is humans' attempts at recruiting other animals into their struggle. Of course, historically, cats have been considered man's best friend in the war on rats. But at some point in the middle of the 2000s, we don't exactly know when, the city introduced opossums into Brooklyn, hoping they would make a common enemy of the borough's rats. 
Unfortunately, the opossums defected and began raiding our trash cans and attacking our dogs. Finally, humans have fought rats with the built environment. The reason Manhattan's brown rats have divided into uptown and downtown groups is because the commercial district of Midtown provides a natural barrier. The area's buildings tend to be newer and higher quality, so they're difficult for rats to penetrate. There are also fewer residential properties in the area, meaning less garbage for them to feast on. But simply building new and better buildings won't eradicate the rats. And digging for construction can break open rat burrows, sending them scurrying into nearby homes and businesses. The fact is, rats are here because of us. As long as human trash is on the street, New York will maintain its status as one of the rodent capitals of the world. The city's waste collection policy doesn't help. New Yorkers leave their trash bags on the curb the night before collection, creating what one Fordham biology professor described as an all-night buffet for the rats. Recently, the mayor's office suggested residents put out their trash only on the morning of collection, but the proposal was met with a massive backlash. Ultimately, making a real dent in New York's rat population would require changing something even more stubborn than the rats themselves, the behaviour of New Yorkers. That was Henry Reese Sheridan in New York, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of Monocle on Culture. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>